You can take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 12 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Richard Sibbs was a Puritan pastor. He was born about 50 years after Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the Church of Wittenberg, uh, fanning the embers of a Reformation that had really been growing for the previous century. Throughout his ministry, uh, Sibbs took great care and concern towards focusing his congregation and those to whom he ministered upon Christ, uh, God whom he called the great doctor. He wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. It was a, really an exposition on Isaiah 42 in the passage that talks of the bruised reed and the failing wick. And he wrote it to help hurting and disheartened, discouraged, downcast believers to behold their Savior as the tender shepherd that he is. In the centuries since, many Christians have taken comfort from his book, from his writing, from uh, the words and exposition of that text. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones describes a time when Due to exhaustion, he was, as he put it, subject to an unusual measure of the onslaughts of the devil. Lloyd-Jones named the bruised reed as the means by which God soothed, comforted, encouraged, and healed him during that time. This morning, we're going to be observing, as Matthew looks back to this same passage in Isaiah 42, and finds the manifestation and the fulfillment of that same comfort located in Christ. And he relates it to Jesus and his New Testament ministry, specifically the ministry we find him engaged in in Matthew chapter 12. And so let's read the text together this morning as we encounter these same references, the same allusions back to Isaiah 42. Beginning in Matthew 12, verse 15. But Jesus, aware of this, and really we can back up to verse 14 where the Pharisees had gone out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But aware of this, he withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this Text this morning, pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we encounter Christ as the great comforter, the great shepherd, and the ruler and king. Help us to delight in and take the same comfort that believers through the centuries have found in these words. Pray these things in your name. Amen. We concluded last week... Uh, looking really at the irony of the Pharisees 
What I read there in verse 14, they, they conspired to destroy him, the euphemism for to kill him. The irony is found in the fact that here they are trying to, in their previous verses, trap Jesus as vi somehow violating the fourth commandment on a technicality when they boldly set out and plot to violate the sixth commandment to murder. It's just an irony that, uh, that jumps out at you and you begin to see the the false religion that really undergirds these Pharisees and religious leaders, that it was all a show, that it was for man's eyes and not for God's. This is really begins to mark a turning point in Matthew as the opposition has, it's been building in the background, it's been churning under the surface, but it's really brought to the forefront here as we see, with no pretense, the religious leaders fully opposed to the ministry of Jesus setting out to destroy him. With that background, we see the focus turn from the wicked plotting of the Pharisees and religious leaders to the withdrawal of Jesus in verse 15. The text does not tell us where he withdrew or to where he withdrew. It's somewhere there in Galilee, only that he removed himself from the immediate conflict or conspiring of that group of Pharisees. As Matthew presents the person of Christ in these chapters, chapters 11 through 16, which we've highlighted before, Matthew really begins to take in these chapters, or he takes these chapters, and he wants us to see as many characteristics, attributes, and facets of Christ as he can fit into these pages, or into these words, or into his scroll. And in fact, we can see some of these are just almost, they're implicit, they're they're very subtly mentioned. You see one of those right here in verse 15. But Jesus, aware of this. Here Matthew alludes to his knowing, to his omniscience. After the plotting, about the plotting of the Pharisees to destroy him. Uh, here they are plotting, conniving in secret, not publicly going about, shouting it in the streets. And yet Jesus is aware of this. And so it is with his prescient knowledge. Jesus withdraws with his disciples. But his withdrawal in contrast to the secret plotting of the Pharisees, is not in secret. It's merely in locale to allow the tensions to subside. In fact, we find throughout Jesus' ministry, he would often withdraw. Frequently, it was associated with mounting opposition of religious leaders. But why the withdrawal? I mean, this is Jesus. So why withdraw? It's a fair question to ask. Well, certainly we could say it's in part because the time has not yet come for the ultimate suffering and sacrifice of servant, what we remembered this morning as we took communion, to be realized. It's also because the ministry is not yet complete and there's more to teach, there's more to impart to his disciples. He could have just chosen, now's the time to go to the cross, but it wasn't the right time. So he withdraws. Notice that just by way of observation, Jesus doesn't seek out persecution or conflict. He's not afraid of it. He engages in it when necessary, and it will ultimately be the end of his earthly life. He knows a time is going to come when he's going to suffer, suffer cruelly and harshly. And he's not afraid of those things. He's not afraid to confront sin. We see him do that over and over whenever necessary. He's not seeking to avoid those things, but he likewise doesn't exhibit some sort of martyr complex where his 
whereby he seeks persecution, opposition, and suffering just for the sake of doing those things and drawing attention to himself. It's also important to note that throughout his ministry, Jesus is never forced to withdraw. It's always a choice. It's his own choice that he withdraws from their midst. And yet, this withdrawal in no way impacts the reach and popularity of Jesus' ministry, because we see here many follow. And Jesus continues to heal all who are sick. And this is done, as we've discussed, going back to really even before the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, throughout chapter 8. It was done as a manifestation of the power that Jesus has over sin and death and the promise of the coming kingdom where there will be an end to all sickness, all disease, all suffering, all sadness. Jesus does this because the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom has drawn near in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This healing is also a reminder that salvation involves the whole person. Ultimately, the whole of creation will be saved or restored. And God's purposes will not be fully accomplished, as one commentator notes, until matters on the earth are set right, just as they are in the Father's very presence in heaven. Notice, too, that there's no failures in his healing ministry. This is really what sets him apart from the charlatans who are out trying to make money off the backs of the people. He healed freely, and he healed all who came in need of healing. He was no snake oil salesman who sought to profit off of these people. Sadly, there's still many today who deceive and those who are deceived and are duped by those who promise healing only to disappoint, who promise healing for a cost, who promise extra blessing for a charge. And such teaching is not of Christ. It is not God-honoring. It belongs to the works of Satan. It exploits persons for self-aggrandizement of modern-day religious leaders. Jesus' ministry is anything but that. The ministry of a true follower of Jesus Christ should be anything but that. There is no charge for this healing that Jesus is doing. Jesus continues to warn them against going out and proclaiming who he was. We've seen him do this several times. He did it with the leper after he'd healed the leper. He said, don't go tell anyone. Instead, immediately go and present yourself to the priest. Don't go talking about it. He disobeyed. He's healed others and he tells them, don't tell anyone. And I don't know what it is, but people... They appreciated the healing, but they couldn't follow through on the instruction. They had to go tell. So they would often make it known. Now, why is it that Jesus didn't want them to yet make it known? It's an interesting question to ponder. It could be that Jesus did not seek to further inflame the religious leaders against him at this time. It could likewise be that Jesus did not want the focus to be on his miracles. Rather, he wanted the focus to be on the message, the content, the ministry, the kingdom. And so he sought to mute the emphasis on the miracles so as to not obscure that message. The miracles were intended, to conv- intended as evidence and testimony to his messianic claims, to his divinity and the coming kingdom, but they were never the end goal. They were never to be the focus. Sim- similarly, it could be that Jesus did not want people flocking to him, looking for a Messiah who would overthrow governing authorities through might and power that he was exhibiting. 
those who came only to seeking for a Messiah who could only meet their physical and temporal wants and desires can all likely fall under the general category that MacArthur notes when he says that he sought to diminish emphasis on the miracles because this was still the time of his humiliation, not his exaltation. And likely it was a combination of these things and more that led to Jesus telling those whom he was healing at this time and throughout most of his ministry to keep it quiet. There would be a time of commissioning, of a going forth and proclaiming all of these things at the end of his ministry in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, what we frequently call the Great Commission. But just as the time of suffering had not come, so too the time of exaltation and proclamation had not yet come. Well, Matthew takes stock of these events. He takes stock of Jesus' withdrawal. He takes stock of the persons flocking to him. He takes stock of the healings that Jesus is doing freely and abundantly to all who come in need. He looks at all these things, he observes all these things and these events, and he sees in all of them the fulfillment of what God has promised long ago through the prophet Isaiah. And that's where we're going to focus most of our time this morning. And so Matthew provides here his longest quotation from the Old Testament in his gospel in reference to Jesus' works and Jesus fulfilling the ministry that was prophesied so many years ago. This is not the first time Matthew has made reference to the Old Testament. It's not the first time he's made reference to Isaiah when speaking of Christ. And it's good to stop and pause. We've talked about this before, this word fulfill. This is not the first time we've seen this, and it's good to remind ourselves of what it means, just to make sure we're working off of the same understanding of this term. As a brief reminder, fulfill can at times have a one-to-one -one correspondence, that it's an exactness, but more often it refers to the climatic expression or representation of something previously promised or described. In other words, yes, there's been many who have fit the bill, but this is the epitome of what this means. And that's what that term fulfilled means. Context helps us to affirm which is intended, and the more abstract the comparison, the more likely it is to be the latter. Here we find that latter and more common meaning of fulfill as Jesus is presented as, by Matthew as the highest and greatest expression of what the prophet Isaiah foretold. There have been many types who have come and have done little bits of this, but none have fulfilled it the way Christ has. Jesus embodies all that Israel was meant to be and is the greatest expression of Israel to ever live. He is the seed promised to Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Where Israel did this rather imperfectly in the Old Testament, and that's putting it mildly, Jesus obeys perfectly, demonstrates perfectly all that God intended through the nation of Israel. Verses 18 through 21, as we've noted, is the longest continual Old Testament quotation or reference to the Old Testament by Matthew. And means it's important to Matthew. Matthew didn't want to just make a quick allusion. He wanted to make a thorough allusion and reference to this text. And it's important because it shows what type of Messiah Jesus is. In the midst of presenting who Christ is in chapters 11 through 16, this text 
perhaps more than any other in the Old Testament, to Matthew, presents who Christ is. Understanding the character and the nature of Jesus. Isaiah 42, 1-4 contains much of the text that Matthew references. And I do say references because while Matthew does quote much of this verbatim, at least through translation from the Hebrew into the Greek, he also incorporates terms from the larger section. He refers back to chapter 41 with a couple of terms that he substitutes. He also looks ahead in chapter 42 to later verses and substitutes those in. So while most of it is a verbatim translation, you might say, of the Old Testament into the New, Matthew's continuing to grab from the entire context of really going all the way back to chapter 41 through chapter 42, and as we're going to see, going all the way back to Genesis with some of his references. And Matthew does this because, again, as we've discussed previously, when biblical writers refer to earlier scripture, they're often referring to more than just a single text, but they want to use that text to anchor all of the text, all of the theology to which they're referencing. In other words, there's a bunch to be taught about Christ in this whole corpus of Isaiah that chapter 42 opens up. In other words, chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, is the gateway that we enter to see all of these things that Matthew wants us to see by this single reference. And it includes a larger context here. So let's go ahead and read, and if you haven't already turned there, turn to Isaiah 42 for a moment, and let's read those first four verses before we look at Matthew's reference to this passage. And you'll note a few things that sound just slightly different, and we'll talk about those and why that is and what Matthew is doing here. Isaiah the prophet writing at the behest of God writes, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Turning back to Matthew 12, verse 18 introduces us to the prophesied servant son of God who will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Both Matthew's reference and Isaiah's call attention to this servant by saying, Behold, that Matthew translated verbatim, Behold, look, pay attention to this one about whom we speak. Servant here, though, is... An interesting term, it's, it's a more intimate term for servant. It's not the term you may have heard before, doulos, which is a slave. Rather, it's pais, which sometimes was used, if I frequently used, of a son. Or one who was adopted as a son, as a servant who was adopted as a son. It was used of a, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to servants who were more family than they were anything else. It was also used in Job 4.18 to describe the angelic beings and their relationship to God as his servants. So this is a much more intimate term than just servant or slave. It's one that connotes the idea of sonship. It's an intimate term. 
with that euphemism for the sonship of Christ while at the same time noting the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise of God's servant. The term for choose is likewise unique. It's, in fact, this is the only time in the entire New Testament this Greek word is used. And we've translated the, with our English word choose other Greek terms, but this Greek term occurs, occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. And even in secular Greek literature, in what we have available to us, what's extant and has survived, even there it's a very rare term. And so I began to look at, in Isaiah 42, well, what, what is it that Matthew is trying to denote here? In Isaiah 42, the Hebrew word is the word uphold. It's used a variety of ways, including to describe a king as the scepter holder. In Amos, in fact, it was an ancient term for king when describing the one who was the scepter holder. And then really that fits the context very well. Because instead of holding up the scepter, God holds forth the son. In fact, if we want to go all the way back to Genesis 49, we're reminded that the, rod, the scepter and the rod will never depart from Ju Judah, a promise of the coming Messiah. And so this one that is chosen, this one who is upheld, has great allusion to this term of upholding that is tied to a scepter and a king. In Numbers 24, 17, we're reminded yet again that a star will come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. And here we see the fulfillment of these promises culminate in God holding up the promised king and Messiah, Jesus. And what is it that Matthew wants us to see here? It's that this servant who is held forth as the promised scepter is the king. And this servant, this Son, this king, he is beloved, according to Matthew. Beloved is not used in the Isaiah passage. You may have seen that in Isaiah 42. However, if you go back to Isaiah 41.8, you do find the term beloved. And it's used to describe Israel. And what Matthew does is he's drawing back Again, to the general corpus, all the, he would have been familiar with all of the text of Isaiah, but he's thinking back just a few verses earlier to Isaiah 41.8 to this description of beloved that was describing Israel and, and Abraham and Jacob, and he's now transferring it to Christ, who is the perfect representation of Israel, my servant, my beloved. Isaiah 42.1 instead says, in whom my soul delights. The idea is very similar. Your soul delights in the one who is your beloved. But Matthew uses the word beloved because he wants to draw upon Jesus' fulfillment of the expectation of Israel that was made through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise of salvation, the blessing that was to come to all the nations. We see that term beloved as a reference for Christ picked up by Paul in Ephesians 1, verses 6 and 7. And it's in this beloved that our hope of salvation rests. And that's really the idea that Matthew is pointing to. It's the idea that's always been incumbent in this term when applied to Christ and to the hope of the seed of Israel. That's because the beloved is the culmination of the promise of salvation that was given through Abraham and Israel. And they see that the pleasure of the Father is in this son we saw that back in Matthew 3.17 at Jesus' baptism. It says, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
We'll again see it later in Matthew 17, 5 on the Mount of Transfiguration where he again says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you realize it is not possible for men to be pleasing to God apart from Christ? It is not possible for us to please God in and of ourselves. There is nothing we can do. There is nothing we have to offer that delights Christ, that delights God, except that it's brought through Christ. It is our relationship in Christ. And this is why Paul says over and over again in Ephesians, and that's what we're studying together in our men's Bible study. That's why he says over and over again, in Christ, in Him, in Christ, and in Him. Because Paul's desire, Jesus' desire, is that we would be well-pleasing to the Father, but it can only be done in Christ. In our natural state, we are enemies with God, and unless we come to God through the Son, it is not possible to have the Father's good pleasure on us. And yet through Christ, all the fullness of the Father's love is experienced. Now, we have to stop and ask for a second. In what way was God's Spirit put upon Jesus? As the eternal Son of God, the Father... Son and Spirit are eternally coexistent in one. So how and in what way has the Spirit been added to Jesus? Now, I don't plan to unpack every mystery of the Trinity. But here we see again the mystery of Jesus' incarnation, where he humbled himself. He took upon himself human flesh, and this is frequently referred to as the kenosis. It's, we find this in Philippians 2 where it's described in more detail as he humbled himself, taking upon himself the image of man. And it was in taking on human flesh that he was fully man, fully human, while remaining fully God. It's a mystery that we cannot fully articulate and fully explain outside of what Scripture has provided. But we see that in his humanness, he experienced temptation, as the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.15, not just a little temptation, he was tempted in every way as we have been tempted. The key difference is yet without sin. He experienced human emotions, feelings, and pain as we described this morning earlier. And it was upon this humanness that the Spirit of God was thus anointed to empower and enable Jesus' humanity to function in concert with his deity to fulfill the ministry for which he had come to earth. And so that's what we mean when we talk about his spirit being poured out upon Jesus. It's not because his deity was lacking anything. He never ceased to be God. But the humanity that was joined with his deity at the incarnation was then empowered by the spirit so that they could work in concert with one another. And this ministry included justice to the Gentiles, as we read. Now, justice, righteousness, and salvation are terms that uh, there's many places where they occur synonymously, used interchangeably. They're not truly synonymous terms, but they're used interchangeably to highlight some of the same ideas. And that's what we see here, where justice speaks to the hope of salvation to the Gentiles, as we'll see in verse 21. God's plan of redemption had always included the Gentiles, in fact, before there was an Israel, God promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. The 
the hope of the Gentiles was realized in Jesus just as it was for the Jews. The two groups, in fact, are brought together in Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of all mankind. Verse 19 highlights how different this messianic ruler is from those who normally lead a nation. And here we see even more glimpses into why Matthew chose Isaiah 42. In verse 19, we see he will not quarrel nor cry out. That immediately calls to mind that image of the suffering servant that we're so familiar with from Isaiah 53, where he was despised and forsaken of man, of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. We see a ruler, a king, put forth as one who will suffer, who doesn't quarrel, doesn't cry out. What type of king is this? Well, likewise, we can see in the description that one will... not hear his voice in the streets. A further contrast with the religious leaders and the rulers and the philosophers and the teachers of the day who would go about shouting in the streets, attempting to attract a crowd of following those who would come alongside them. So he suffers in silence, but it wasn't so that he could save his voice to shout out in the streets and try to attract a crowd. No, he still continued, and as we saw just a few verses earlier, continued his ministry with an emphasis to downplay the miracles and the actions and the work. Not seeking to draw a crowd that he had to entertain. Jesus was the opposite of those of his day, trying to downplay and minimize the appeal of his ministry to the senses, but rather to appeal to the hearts and the minds. We do well to note this in our churches today. While we do not want to be a light hidden under a bushel, we want to avoid that, we should be careful before we emulate the methods of this world in trying to attract followers and crowds. Certainly we should be known in our neighborhoods, in our community, and there's nothing wrong with letting people know we exist, but whatever we use to attract persons must be maintained in order to keep them. And if you're not careful, before you know it, the tail is wagging the dog and you have to focus on amusing the crowds rather than preaching the gospel for fear of losing those same persons. In addition to not seeking to defend himself or make a name for himself, Jesus further differentiated his ministry by those whom he cared for. And here we get to the crux of it. He did not seek out the wealthy, the popular, the wise of this world, but he took the time to care for the hurting and the broken. Reeds grew by the thousands, if not millions, along the banks of the Jordan and the other rivers and creeks and tributaries. These reeds, often hollow in the middle, or took just very little work to hollow them out, were used for a variety of purposes. You know, a shepherd or someone who spent a lot of time down there may cut off little sections to use as flutes or may make flutes that they sell in the marketplace. A measuring rod. A scribe's pen was often made out of a reed because it was easy, it was disposable, it was cheap. In fact, it was so cheap that most 
would not even give a second thought to casting aside an imperfect or crushed reed and replacing it with a better one. This battered reed and smoldering wick is a reference here to persons. To those referred to in Matthew 9.35 and 11.28, those who are distressed, those who are dispirited, the weary, the heavy laden, those who are longing for rest. But as one commentator notes, the Lord's servant, that is Jesus here, he does not discard those who can be likened to these shattered or bruised reeds, the earth's broken ones. The same is true in the image of the smoldering wick. A wick that functions imperfectly is a nuisance. It wouldn't give out enough light, and its smoldering released a little bit of smoke that was unpleasant. A simple thing to do is snuff it out, throw it away. A little bit of flax didn't cost very much, so replacing it would have been the normal procedure. It's cheap, it's easy, it's quick. Instead, it took time and patience and the willingness to take pains to make anything useful out of a bruised reed or a smoking wick. People in general would not take the trouble to do such a thing. And this description of the Messiah runs counter to the effects of the fall. Think about it for a moment. Because of the fall, it is the most natural thing to destroy and hurt. Watch young children play together and note the selfishness, the tendency toward destruction. One child's going to build a tower. What's the other child going to do? Come and knock it over. Why? Because they want to. It's in their nature. Adults are really no better. Not only do I knock over my children's stuff, but think about it in the workplace. Persons manipulate, they undercut, they deceive, they try to further their own position at the expense of others. With our words and actions, our sinful nature is bent toward destruction, not restoration. And so what this is describing, this servant who is being described here, is completely opposite human nature. And yet those who experience the transforming power of the gospel receive a new nature. That's why we need a new nature. Rather than being bent toward destruction, we seek to emulate Christ in this process of restoration. This is really a ministry to be emulated. There's far too little attention given to emulating this part of Jesus' ministry. A battered reed he will not break off, a smoldering wick he will not extinguish. Time and effort spent to alleviate the suffering of the afflicted, the lifting up of the downtrodden, whether it be emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, to take the time and the effort, it is going to be exhausting. The closer you get to people, the uglier it looks. The thing to keep in mind is it looks uglier to them too. We begin to see one another's sins. We see one another, what, the imperfections of one another. And yet we need to take the time to do this, to emulate our Lord, and coming alongside the smoldering wick, the bruised reed, those who are hurting, those who are caught up in sin. It's good and right to practice church discipline, but at times I wish it would be called church restoration. Because that's the goal. That's always been the goal. It's never intended to be punitive, but restorative. Yeah, you deal with false teachers differently, but we're talking about the body of Christ, and it is to be restorative. 
Well, we must not be, we must be careful not to break a crust of bruised weed or put out the smoldering wick. We can't exert caution to discern between the weak and the wicked. And that's the distinction there between those who are truly false teachers versus those who are caught up in sin. For the weak, we show great gentleness and care in how we handle them and seek to restore either because of sin or because of being downcast by circumstances and the difficulties of this toilsome life. But there's also an invitation an invite to caution and discerning between weakness and wickedness. Here we are focusing on weakness. And don't think that you're one of the strong. In fact, the admonition is take heed lest you fall. Each of us needs others in our life. None of us can stand alone. I know some of you are here this morning and wonder why life has to be so hard, particularly for a Christian. I mean, shouldn't it be easier if we're a Christian? Yes, it's made easier to endure because of the hope, but why does it have to be hard? Why do we have to be bruised? Why do we have to smolder? The main point of Richard Sibb's exposition of this text, and it's a book I recommend you you pick up. It's been put back in print. But the main point is to draw our eyes to, as he calls it, the heavenly doctor. And Sibs reminds us that bruising, in particular spiritual bruising, is an essential element of our relationship with Christ because it lifts up our eyes. It causes us to lift up our eyes from ourselves unto Christ. Because when we don't need help, when we think we're fine, we're usually not looking at Christ. As Sibs notes, to have our hands taken from the sandstone of self-reliance and placed on the granite of dependence on Christ can be painful and even frightening, but we're safer and we make better progress when we believe Christ's words in John 15, 5, that apart from me, you can do nothing. And so this bruising, it reminds us of our constant need of the heavenly doctor to heal our soul. It drives us back to him as the harsh wind drives us to the shelter of the rock. Jesus' comforting ministry will continue both directly and through his followers until justice is established. Or as we read, until he leads justice to victory. Again, we see this use of justice as a reference to salvation and righteousness. And these things are realized in the coming kingdom. And this is even more obvious when we realize that the phrases, or the phrase to victory here, it's used as a euphemism for forever. Other places it's used as a euphemism for successfully. And so we see that this effort to support the battered reed and the smoldering wick will continue both through Christ and through his servants, through his followers, until justice is successfully established, which is a view towards eternity. Until justice reigns forever. When will that take place? In the coming kingdom. Now, why does it say it will only be until that time? Well, it's because that time refers to the hope of the promised kingdom, a kingdom comprised of Jew and Gentile. And what do we know about this kingdom? Every tear is wiped away. And the ministry will no longer be necessary. It's not because Christ somehow loses some attribute of his character. That cannot happen. He is 
He is one, he is immutable, he is unchangeable, he is simple, he is not composed of parts. But rather the manifestation of this attribute will be realized in the complete comfort, the complete healing that is found in the kingdom. And so this ministry, this ministering to the bruised reed, to the smoldering wick, is a hope and an anticipation as it continues to, yes, lift our eyes to Christ and to lift our eyes to the hope of eternity. And again, we see how unique Christ is as Matthew presents this servant, this son, this king. Because in popular expectation of Messiahs, there was an expectation in the Jewish culture of what would the Messiah look like. The Messiah was going to come with authority. He was going to crush his opposition. But Jesus showed his authority by his concern for the helpless and the downtrodden. Matthew closes this quotation by noting another ironic feature of this Messiah. And that is that Gentile hope is in him. That in and of itself would have been astounding. In fact, it got the religious leaders and many other Jews really upset with Paul in Acts 22. You can read that encounter. But Matthew says that it's in his name that the Gentiles will hope. A name is a reference to all that comprises a person. All that is hoped for, thought of, and found in Christ and who he is is communicated by his name. But what is particularly interesting is that it is the quotation from my, is really in its comparison to this quotation from Isaiah 42. Maybe, maybe turn back there. Hold your place in both spots. Turn back to Isaiah 42. And notice what term is replaced there. Instead of hoping in his name, what does Isaiah 42.4 say? Hope in his law or the Torah. Now why would Matthew change it from Torah to name? He's not changing scripture. Let's be careful there. He's not messing with it. No, he's teaching us something from the previous text. And this change teaches us something. What is it teaching us? It's really quite profound and maybe might even say clever. Matthew is making reference to what John makes explicit in John 1, where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The law and the Torah is found in Christ. Matthew is pointing not only to the incarnation of the Word of God, but is also highlighting why he is called the Word of God, or the Logos. And it's because the law and the prophets are fulfilled, they reach their greatest culmination in Jesus Christ. So what other name is there to substitute? What more appropriate thing could you substitute for law or Torah than Christ himself, in which all of these things are fulfilled? Jesus is the greatest representation and the culmination of all that is promised in the Old Testament. He is the Word became flesh. And just by that little swap there, Matthew draws that out for us, for his hearers and his readers. And this Word, this Son, this Messiah, this Servant, this Scepter, this King is the hope of Gentiles. Now that's really good for me and for most of us in this room probably that our hope is found in Jesus Christ. 
This hope of the Gentiles is the hope of rest that can only be found in Jesus Christ. This is the hope that goes back to the fall in Genesis 3. As we've looked at a few times before, even as recently as a couple weeks ago, to Genesis, where we see Lamech name his son Noah, longing for that rest from the toil, longing for salvation. Those were all Gentiles. There's been a hope amongst Gentiles, longing for rest that can only be found. Its only object, the only satisfying object is in Jesus Christ. Whether Jew or Gentile, they all long, we all long for the same thing, relief and healing from the painful toil of this life that is made so painful and so toilsome from sin. And so true healing must be healing of the whole person, of spirit and body. This rest and this healing is found in Jesus Christ who is gentle and humble in heart, who will not break the bruised reed or put out the smoldering wick. And the healing comes in two parts. It first comes with the forgiveness of sins, but it comes with a view toward the complete and the total healing that is found in the life to come, where every tear is wiped away. But it is only for those who come to Jesus as their Savior and King and are found in Christ and thus have the Father's good pleasure on them. So we rejoice in this healing, in this forgiveness of sins as we've celebrated through communion this morning. And in a few minutes, we'll sing once more as we close, remembering his mercy, his gentleness, and his kindness. But as we close, I want us to think again about the smoldering wick and the bruised reed. And the implications it has for us as followers of Jesus Christ in how we live. First and foremost, take great comfort in it. I hope you can take comfort in it. If you're here this morning and you are not found in Christ, you know this doesn't apply to you. Then I I beg with you, plead with you, come to Christ. He won't turn any away. If you are heavy, if you are weary... If you're exhausted with this world and what feels like an uphill battle every day when you wake up, come to Christ. But for the rest of us, praise God that we have such a servant, such a king who condescends to our weaknesses. And let it motivate us in how we deal with one another, how we deal with those around us. To not quickly shut someone down because they have the wrong theology. Yes, it's right. To, we need to think rightly about God. But be gentle. Be kind. Restore the bruised reed. Restore the flickering wick. Let that mark how we engage one another, how we encourage one another, how we minister to one another, inside of this body and outside. There's great instruction from these passages, much to be emulated from Christ and how he has dealt with us as we seek to love and to restore one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text, this reminder this morning. Thank you for your servant, Jesus Christ, for the Son incarnate, for his ministry, his ministry that does not extinguish the burning wick that deals gently with those of us who come as bruised reeds. Father, may we work hard to emulate that in our own lives 
as we encounter one another, whether it's parents with children, with friends, with family, with neighbors, co-workers, with strangers. Help us to be busy about proclaiming the hope of the gospel, the hope of rest that is found in Christ. In your name, amen.